Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm absolutely delighted to have as my guest Dr. Elizabeth Dean, who is with the Department of Physical Therapy in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, Canada. Welcome, Dr. Dean. Thank you so much, Alan. This is just such a privilege to uh, participate in this, uh, this new format of podcasting, and I do hope that the listeners uh, get as much out of it as uh, I hope they do. Well, I want you to know I really enjoyed your article that we published in PTJ. And for our listeners, the title is Translating COVID-19 Evidence to Maximize Physical Therapist Impact and Public Health Response. Um, I think it's extremely timely, and I really look forward to, uh, to really delving in to some of the themes that you developed. Let's start by having me ask you, um, in your article, you're very passionate in arguing that the global COVID-19 crisis presents a, a relatively unique opportunity for our profession and to continue the advance of our profession and its trajectory. You focus on two major themes, which I thought was really interesting. You thought the first one was through reducing COVID-19 susceptibility, as well as COVID-19 management from its most extreme expression, um, particularly in response to acute respiratory distress syndrome, all the way to maximizing function among those who are discharged and um, are on a path to recovery. And that makes great sense to me. And the second theme was to focus on reducing susceptibility in the future. So let me ask, why do you think we should be focusing on both at this time? It struck me as a very tall order. It certainly is. And the way that I would address that, Alan, is to really look at our history as a profession. And I think as we go through, and, and uh, likely in relation to your other questions, we really, this can be an opportunity. This could catapult us again in terms of our growth and evolution as a profession. When we look historically over the past hundred years and, and more, physical therapy has been responsive. We had nasty polio epidemics, three of them actually in the uh, 20th century. We have had wars, we've had disasters. We've had the non-communicable diseases after the Second World War when we all became more affluent and that we needed to kind of be reflexive. And up to about that time, up to about the 1960s, 70s, physical therapy had been responsive. We had had the capacity in our structure to say, okay, this is the problem of the day. And, and generally, we are largely non-pharmacologic practitioners. That's what we, that's our hallmark. And that we have um, 
as we got more structured and organized, we kind of lost that reflexivity to look at what's the problem of the day and to respond. So there are many good things about becoming structured and organized, but we did not kind of uh, be able to address non-communicable diseases. So when it comes to the question of susceptibility uh, to COVID, when the early data came out from Northern Italy, now the, that was the first epicenter outside, outside China, that, that the statistics were astounding. Less than 1% of those who died from COVID had underlying comorbidity. Less than 1%. You had a 25% chance of dying if you had one, you had a 50% chance of dying if you had two comorbidities, and you had 99.2% chance of dying if you had three or more comorbidities. What does that tell us? That tells us if we really started to be more aggressive with addressing the risk factors for non-communicable diseases, as well as manage them, we now know we can reverse. We can reverse high blood pressure non-pharmacologically, not in everyone, but in many, and type 2 diabetes. Even atherosclerosis, Dean Ornish's work from UC San Francisco, shows that within a year or more, not in everyone, but there has actually been evidence of complete resolution angiographically of atherosclerosis in many patients with a combination of um, uh, a very structured and nutritious diet uh, coupled with exercise. So this is our moment. We, could, we are the vaccine. We, and not to say that other health professionals don't engage in uh, lifestyle behavior change, but this needs to be a competency. And we've written about this. It was published last year in PTJ about minimum health competency standards. So that's the susceptibility. So when we look at the management side, we have known for 15 years or more that it's not just a matter of surviving your ICU stay, but thriving afterwards. Physical therapists have that capacity, but it's underutilized. And what we need to do is not just do great job, because often COVID, even though it has some unique features, it presents in its final stages as adult respiratory distress syndrome. And yes, so we can adapt and, and modify based on our assessment to better meet the needs of the COVID patient who's critically ill, but to maintain that continuum because 15 years or more, we recognized when patients were followed from the ICU, they were doing dreadfully a year out. They were not back to work as much as they should have been. They weren't resuming all their activities of daily living. So this continuum of care, not just doing a great job at the survival and getting them out of the ICU, but being engaged with the, the, the subacute the, 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 and as they leave the ICU. And the early data, we do have data now published in JAMA, that when they follow the survivors that, and they look at the, you know, probably 12 different symptoms and signs that they had, when they had COVID, that those many of those persist uh, two months out afterwards, and who knows what will happen after that? They haven't been followed that long. So that is, you know, to me that's tremendously exciting. But it means that we as a profession have to really say we we're going to lead here. We're going to um, address the susceptibility, be a vaccine, 
as well as to address the continuum of care for COVID. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the role of PT in the continuum of care. You mentioned in your article that our role is indisputable. From your perspective, do you think that's understood by those outside of our profession? And if not, what do you think we should be doing about that? Uh, the, the brief answer is no, but also within the profession, it has to start at home. I'm not sure that we fully appreciate our power. Now, I've been in the biz a while, and the more, you know, I don't think I can read one more article that good health is good for you. I'll go, I tell my students I'll go into a catatonic state. And, but we actually, as a profession, have not embraced this. We need to be the leaders, and we can be the leaders. There's no, we call ourselves health professions, as others do, but we're not practicing health. We're still reductionistic. It's still, um, the removal of signs and symptoms is still equated with health. And health, yes, we want our patients to, be, I want my patients to be comfortable. I want their signs and symptoms to resolve. But we have for 25 years come from a health perspective. So all our reports that go back to their GPs and we explain this is going to be their health status and then their signs and symptom issues will, will follow. So we need to start at home. We need to appreciate uh, not just uh, chest thumping, but we need to, it's all based on the literature. I mean, it's unequivocal, the power of non-pharmacologic intervention. And, uh, and to think of ourselves more working alongside shoulder to shoulder with our medical colleagues. So that, you know, it, we might not get every patient uh, to avoid having drugs, but at least minimize those. And as those are being minimized, we can uh, we need the physician involved to help reduce dosages. So we need to conceptualize ourselves differently. We need to educate. Um, we need to be more secure about our own professional identity. You know, we, as you well know, we came, we were the little sister. We were on the coattails uh, of, of medicine. We were, when all else failed, well, you send them to physical therapy. But, you know, we, our role has extended way beyond that. And partly because um, the World Confederation for Physical Therapy um, has adopted the ICF, which is predicated on the world health definition of, you know, um, health as a complete state of physical, emotional, and, and mental well-being. And to really think what the word health means. We use it way too loosely. So starting at home and educating other healthcare providers and thinking of ourselves as working more shoulder to shoulder with our medical colleagues, that I believe is what we really need to do strenuously without question. Well, it's hard, hard to disagree with that. It's a tall order though, uh, but I like your point about uh, it starts at home. I too would agree with you that um, physical therapists as a profession I don't think they realize the impact that they can have as much as they should. You know, with respect to reducing susceptibility, you mentioned in your article that the World Health Organization has raised concern that in the midst of a pandemic like we're in right now, 
that people are not focusing enough attention on managing non-communicable diseases that, as you rightly point out, are directly related to susceptibility for severe sequelae if you get COVID. What can PTs do to address that concern going forward? Well, again, it, it comes down to our communication. And uh, even though we communicate very well with our patients, we've done a little less. We're, we're getting a bit better at other levels. And, you know, I hate the word of, you know, politics or lobbying. Um, but I think we just really need to think about what the issue is and how we can best address it. When it comes to cardiac rehabilitation, uh, clearly this is not a time to undermine not only um, cardiac rehabilitation, not only for those people who have cardiac issues outside of COVID, but we now know that there's a cardiac component to COVID. You know, it truly is cardiovascular pulmonary um, and that these individuals will need the, the principles and practice of cardiac rehabilitation. Alan, I've never been a big fan of the word cardiac rehabilitation or pulmonary re rehabilitation because it, it, it has prescribed those skills to a setting, to a facility. And really, we need to think about incorporating those principles. You have a patient come in with back pain and they've got risk factors for, for heart disease. Well, you have to incorporate those elements of cardiac rehabilitation into your approach and into your education with that patient. And so it, it, it's a dire omission to start um, for the World Health Organization and, and the facilities that they are uh, reviewing to observe this cutback on, on cardiac rehabilitation because it's underserving those people, as I say, who have heart disease, underserving those people who will have cardiac co complications resulting from COVID. But I think it will also makes me want to revisit how we bring in cardiac rehabilitation principles into general practice because most people, it's the leading cause of death in North America and increasingly in low and middle income countries, Patients who are coming for their musculoskeletal issues, many have underlying risk factors, if not manifestations, for the non-communicable diseases. So we need to avoid this compartmentalization. In our textbook, in fact, we were very hesitant to have a cardiac rehabilitation chapter, a pulmonary rehabilitation chapter. So the way we resolved that was to have our, our ex very important exercise testing training uh, chapters with reference to the principles and then in the appendix to say these have been you know, further refined and developed for this cohort, but the principles need to be brought into general practice. And particularly because as I say, that's what most of us are, are gonna die from and, and cancer. Something to look forward to. You know, it's one of the downsides. We can avoid it. I, let me just tell you, there's one tribe in Bolivia who uh, they've um, no trace of heart disease, even when they control for confounds like age, no trace of heart disease. So, I, you know, when people talk about heart disease, well, it's aging or stroke or high blood pressure. No, it's not. It's living a long time with a certain kind of lifestyle. Let's not get the two confused. They're very different. Yeah. Yeah, and that brings in the whole environmental impact on people's behavior, which is a huge element, um, in my view, at least. 
Um, yes. You make the point about uh, compartmentalizing our approach. To me, I think that's part of the side effect of embracing the medical model approach, which I think has very strong roots, at least in, in the United States, in our profession, because that's how medicine historically has carved up the human body. And we seem to have followed that model quite a bit. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I'm not a, a negative person by any means, Alan, but over the years, I realized that medical school curricula are largely directed by big pharma. Yeah. And so these medical students, uh, you know, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. So drugs are way overprescribed. And when you look, you know, when we talk about best practice, evidence-based practice, it all comes, you know, when you look at those guidelines, and I look at all of them for high blood pressure, um, blood sugar control, it's lifestyle, lifestyle. And then the drugs come secondarily. Lifestyle, lifestyle. We're not doing the lifestyle piece nearly adequately enough. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You put a lot of emphasis in the, um, the importance of patient education as a way to influence lifestyle. And could you talk a little bit about why you think the focus should be on education? And the reason I ask that is because my reading of the literature would suggest that education is not the most efficacious way to change behavior, yet you seem to really focus on that. And I'd, I'd like you to talk a, a bit about why you put so much emphasis there. Um. Well, first of all, let me say, yes, patient education, uh, when it's done effectively, can produce fabulous results. But that's the, the clincher, isn't it, is, is effectively and adherence and all those other things that are beyond a physical therapist's control. But I would have to balance that with that we need to, as democratic societies, even though we love our freedoms, we have to realize that we do need limitations. We do need restrictions. For example, uh, I'm sure when you went to the office or wherever you are, maybe you haven't been out today, but you know, we, we kind of default to driving on the right side of the road. We stop at red lights. We send our kids to school, at least we do when there's no COVID around. You know, there are certain things that as a society we agree are the right things to do. And we don't question that because we realize it's in the public interest and social interests. But what has happened with the food chain is that it has become adulterated. And I, I put attention on the food chain because as, even though I'm basically schooled um, in physical activity and, and uh, exercise, our, the messing with our food chain has really contributed substantially to our, the non-communicable disease issue. And uh, which had there been more regulation around when industry wanted to get involved with the food chain and what was acceptable, what wasn't, what was desirable, what was necessary, what wasn't. That has been tremendously misinforming of our populations. So I would say we need two things. We do need, we need to be better um, uh, educated in terms of health competencies and how to do it. You know, that's when, when you look at the self-efficacy literature, and we've done work related to smoking cessation, that therapists will tell you, we also published this in uh, physical therapy, uh, looked at over 700 Canadian physical therapists, all of, uh, virtually all, not all, 
but uh, 96% acknowledge that, you know, people shouldn't smoke, it's not good for their health. And yet, very low on the confidence to effect smoking cessation. So when we think about self-efficacy, as we as professionals, we have to perceive that we have those competencies, both that we view something as important to change as well as the confidence to do it, but we have to instill that in the patient as well. And the literature shows that physical therapists actually are quite liked by their patients and uh, that we have a, a practice pattern that is spread over time where we spend time with patients and, and we can have many opportunities for teachable moments that other health, so-called health professionals do not. So we can better use this time to you know, talk about important issues related to their health and target and tailor information, have resource information available, use the health improvement card, of the World Health uh, Alliance, the Professions Alliance, of which Marilyn Moffat was the um, president of WCPT when that uh, card was being developed, but it was underutilized. So we're trying to resurrect this health improvement card because clinically it's very useful. It's just two pages, uh, not perfect. We've modified it, but it's, it's a, a good tool for assessment of of basic biometric data, you know, weight, uh, waist girth, uh, blood sugar, cholesterol. And then the other part of it is to, to code their, the level to which they adhere uh, to certain healthy lifestyle behaviors. So it's green code, yellow, and red. Uh, to, and then shifting patients from one health status to another is the goal of, of, of the education that can be used through that card. So it's called the health improvement card. It's downloadable. We, um, as I say, there are issues with it. We've revised it and we're hoping to get that uh, published. So as I say, it's a combination. Um, I, I still believe, even though I think the weakness of health education has been the way in which it's been applied, uh, but we also need to be uh, much more engaged with what's happening with the food chain. The American um, College of Lifestyle Medicine and the Physicians Committee on Responsible Medicine are two fabulous sources that are really putting the emphasis on health and, and lifestyle behavior change. And the Lancet EAT Commission, which came out last year about the necessity for a whole food plant-based diet. Those are great resources for the listeners to, um, to use in their teaching and to, you know, we're all busy practitioners. So how can we integrate these tools expediently uh, into our practices? And that's what practitioners are, are seeking. And they want to do a good job. And we're explaining how. And it's, it's not difficult because the literature is all there supporting it. I'm sorry? Mm -hmm. uh, the literature is all there. It's not that we have to research the benefits that good health is good for you. Whole food, plant-based diet, the literature is voluminous in terms of its benefits. You know, the Mediterranean diet, the Okinawa diet, which are both uh, nutritional regimens that are whole food, plant-based. Outcomes are better in the, in the countries where these types of nutritional regimens are, are adopted. People live routinely to 100 years of age with little, if any, end-of-life morbidity. Little Thank or you. any end-of-life morbidity. The blue yeah. zones, it's called. So another good source. 
I think those are good examples. And I think I would say you have more confidence in the potential impact of patient education than I would. Because uh, it seems to me, until we begin to change societal norms, we're really working upstream in an individual patient education approach that so much of our behavior is influenced by societal norms. I, I totally agree, Alan, but I, I wouldn't give up on it. I, you know, I think we have to stand up uh, ethically if we are espouse best and evidence-based practice. Um, unfortunately, people have access to all the processed food, ultra-processed food. And I have to tell you, I, I learned a new one recently because I, I have become a reviewer for many nutrition journals and uh, prestigious ones. And a recent one talked about hyper-palatable food, where engineers, psychologists, chemists, nutritionists find the combination of, of, of fat, sugar, salt, and refined carbohydrates that are very palatable that will sell well. And we're programmed, right, uh, based on our evolution to, to want energy. Yep. And so, yes, I agree. We have to actually change what's available. That seems like a tall order, but that's what needs to be done. And we need to be vocal and effective spokes. You know, we need to stand up for something. We need to take a stand and to say non-communicable diseases are unacceptable to the physical therapy profession. Yeah, as easy as that. It's unacceptable. We do not accept this. These should be the least causes of death. But the way and largely diet is assuring that, you know, when I first graduated, people got their strokes in their 70s, maybe their heart attacks in their 60s. Now a 30-year-old comes in with those and it's not a talk at the coffee table anymore. How yeah. tragic is that? And I didn't graduate a million years ago. <laughs> so, nor, nor did I. I sense we might be contemporaries in that regard. <laughs> well, you know, we are so powerful. We are so we are powerful beyond measure, which is a, a term I use in my talks. And we've just got to embrace it. And not in a chest-thumping way, but the evidence is so abundantly clear. We don't have to do any more research. <laughs> No, no, the challenge is independent. Yes. To me, the, the research challenge is to find the most effective ways to change behavior, not yes. the reasons for changing behavior. I, I think you're absolutely correct. The evidence is overwhelming. But we, we don't have a lot of good evidence showing individual patient education has really been effective in changing behavior. That's a lot of challenge. Yes, it is. And if we change, I always think, because I work in, in, uh, in collectivistic countries as well, and if you can change one person, they have a little network and that person might change. And another slide that I show in my talks is that over a, a course of an average physical therapist's career, they're going to touch the lives of 250,000 people. And if we have that opportunity, and if maybe one or two people in their network um, will it be affected? I, I don't think we should give up on it. And I, I have to say, I'm totally aware of that literature, Alan, because one another um, uh, study that I cite frequently is one that shows cancer survivors. Now, this is the ultimate wake-up call. The cancer survivors. I mean, smoking is still very high in that cohort in this particular study with six di different diagnoses of cancer. Smoking wasn't 100% obliterated. 
and a minimal number were adhering to even five a day, you know, fruit and veggie servings, um, exercising minimally. Uh, it was shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Something needs to be done. And I think it's both, we have to do our best, even though we might not, uh, and just hope that for one person we've found the best ways to tailor and target. You know, we have to individualize both to the individual, their literacy, their culture, all these things we need to consider to at least give the education the best chance possible. And the other, let me very briefly say just it, with smokers, you know, the best thing if a smoker comes to you, you've got a patient and the smoker says, well, you know, I've tried six times. Great, you've succeeded. You, you know, they, they had a period when they had quit. The chances of you quitting increase the more times you try. So we have all sorts of strategies that we use. I admire your positivity. I really do. Before we end, I want to talk a little bit about the um, recommendations that you have made with respect to basic competencies for people who are coming out of our educational programs uh, as physical therapists. Could you talk a little bit for our listeners about what you see as the key core competencies in this area of non-communicable disease management? Certainly. Uh, this has been a topic that we've written on uh, for the last uh, 10 years or so. And uh, again, not to be self-promoting, but we've got a couple of what I think are, are substantial articles in, in, the, in physical therapy um, where we talk about several things, but mostly how do you assess the need? You know, a health competency has to be based on some assessment. It has to then have, as we prescribe other treatments, we assess, we then uh, make some sort of diagnosis, we then um, uh, recommend and prescribe a treatment intervention or some intervention. This would be a learning teaching intervention, and then we evaluate the outcome, but that's not always possible if we don't see them for a long period of time. But in, if, if listeners are, are interested to go back in, in 2019 in, in the article on, on minimum standards for health competencies and physical therapist practice, where we have a chart, a table in which we show smoking and we separate nutrition from being overweight or obese because they're different issues, some overlap of course. Um, we separate out sedentary behavior versus physical inactivity. Those are distinct. Uh, sleep and stress. We, I'm not sure we talk about alcohol in that one, but certainly alcohol is a, is a factor. Um, and so, uh, and the other thing I would say is, it's not just one thing and uh, one thing going into a class and hearing this or somebody talk about it, but it has to be evaluated in the same way that we would evaluate a student in a practical exam or in a clinical exam in terms of back pain or a hip with osteoarthritis, a person with a osteoarthritis of the hip. We need to observe students. They need to be held accountable for demonstrating some competency, some minimal competency 
in, in, in these health uh, assessments and uh, lifestyle behavior change interventions. I think that's critical. Otherwise, students think, well, that's a nice to know, and yes, health's important, but let me get back to crunching this back. Let me get back to, you know, this minuscule tear, you know, um, and we have to do this in every patient because these NCD risk factors and uh, manifestations which are decimating people who have COVID, um, we need to take, um, you know, be much more aggressive in how we uh, assume our responsibility in addressing these. Very, very important. And as I said earlier, I, you know, we have the vaccine, quote unquote. Yeah, we I like that vaccine. phrase very much. I like that phrase very much. Well, I, I want to thank you both for taking the time this morning to talk about your article and for publishing it. I think you really do raise some really important opportunities created by this pandemic. And I would encourage our listeners to take a look at this article as well as others that you reference in the article that deal in more detail with some of these points. So thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity, Alan. I appreciate it.